Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast is a very special time of year because it gives us, as God's people, a chance to focus our minds on a major event in the plan of God. Over the years, Mr. Armstrong and others have asked the question, Why are we here? Why are we here at the Feast? That question is asked in order for us to focus our minds on very definite reasons why we are here. You know, we live in a world where there's some two billion Christians, and yet those Christians do not understand and do not observe the holy days that are described in the Bible, the festivals that picture the plan of God. People are told today that these Old Testament festivals are part of the Old Covenant, and this has been done away with, and that Christians have been liberated and are no longer under the burden of the law. And yet, when you study the Scriptures, that simply doesn't agree with what the Bible reveals. As we get into the sermon today, let's turn back to Leviticus 23 and just notice several things. Let's notice what God has to say about these holy days about the festivals that picture the plan of God. In Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. They're not the feasts of Moses. They're not the festivals of the Jews. They are the feasts of God. And the Bible says they're holy convocations. Look up the word convocation. That means a commanded assembly. We're commanded to be here because God wants us to remember what these days picture. If we turn to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. For seven days unto the Lord. The first day shall be a holy convocation, a commanded assembly. And talks about the eighth day is to be a very special period of time also. Verse 37, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Down in verse 41, it says, You shall keep it as a feast, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days. And it shall be a statute forever, a statute forever in your generations. This is what God told Moses to teach to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, where he was restoring an understanding of the truth. He gave them commanded holy days to keep in order to keep them mindful of the plan of God. We notice in the New Testament very quickly, because many people think that these holy days have been done away with, that Jesus came to do away with the law, and yet this is exactly opposite to what we read in the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning of Christ's ministry, in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think... Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The Greek word here means to fill to the full or to complete. 
And Jesus shows in the remainder of chapter 5 here in the book of Matthew that it's it's not only wrong to kill your brethren. He said it's wrong to hate. It's wrong to say bad things about another person. He showed that the letter of the law, he came to expand to show the spirit of the law. So Jesus did not come to do away with the commandments. He did not come to do away with the laws of God. Notice in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. A chapter that deals with the feast. With the Feast of Tabernacles. In John chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Now the feast, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The Jews were the only ones keeping the feast at that time. In verse 8, he said, You, talking to his brothers, he said, You go up to this feast. So here's a commandment by Jesus Christ to his brothers to go up and keep the feast. I'm not going up to the feast yet, he says, for my time has not fully come. But verse 10, when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast. Because it was a commanded assembly. Not openly, but as it were in secret. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. So here is Jesus speaking at the feast. Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus uh, stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. So here we find Jesus Christ saying, I didn't come to do away with the law. Jesus Christ going up to the feast, telling his brothers to go up to the feast, and then Jesus speaking at the feast. In Acts chapter 18, the 18th chapter of Acts, Paul makes an interesting statement. This is 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Paul makes the statement here in Acts chapter 18, He took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. Paul was convicted 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection that he needed to keep the feast in Jerusalem. So we find Paul keeping the feast and being very convicted about it. If we go finally to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing during the days of unleavened bread, during the Passover season. Down in verse 7, he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, telling people they needed to be repentant and change their lives, that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover, showing that Jesus Christ was pictured by the Passover lamb. For indeed, Jesus Christ... For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now notice verse 8, telling a group of Gentile Christians, Therefore let us keep the feast. So Paul is telling the church in the early first century, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here we find Jesus Christ in the New Testament keeping the feast, telling his brothers to keep the feast, then going up and preaching at the feast. Paul saying, I must keep the feast 20 or 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's saying to the early church, let us keep the feast. He says later in 1 Corinthians, talking about... um, 
follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. Just as Christ kept the feast, so did Paul. And so should we today. But how do we keep the feast? What do we do at the feast? We just read in Leviticus chapter 23 that they are holy convocations. They are worship services. So it will be worshiping God at the feast. But notice also in Deuteronomy chapter 14, the instructions that Moses gave to the Israelites to tell them how to keep the feast. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, he talks about saving a tithe. He said, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses that tithe. Now, other scriptures talk about a tithe that is given to the Levites, that is given to the church, in order to provide for the preaching of the gospel. But here is a tithe that we are to eat at a place where God places his name. In other words, a second tithe that we're to use to keep the feasts. Now, why does God want us to do that? Notice in verse 26, You shall surely spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen and sheep. That doesn't mean replenishing your herds. It's basically what you're going to be eating at the feast. For wine or a similar drink or a strong drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And to be able to spend approximately one-tenth of your income for keeping the feasts is designed by God to make this a very enjoyable time. You know, the general guidelines that we've given over the years is that the second tithe is to be used for going to, staying at, and coming from the feast. You know, not for buying furniture for your house, not for buying new cars, you know, but enjoying the feast. The Bible also says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you can use that tithe to uh, provide good fellowship with others, to give to others, we can use that tithe to bring joy to others at the feast, and that also brings joy to us. So the guidelines that the Bible gives us for using our second tithes is to enjoy the feast, to rejoice at the feast. Being at the feast is also a time to worship God. But if we also turn now to Numbers, excuse me, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And notice what Nehemiah did, how he worked with God's people in the context of the festivals, and especially the context of these festivals in the latter part of the year. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, the latter part of that, says, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men and women, and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month. This is actually the Feast of Tabernacles, excuse me, the Feast of Trumpets. This is actually the Feast of Trumpets. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. 
and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra and the other priests explained from the book of the law what it was all about. Latter part of verse 7, they helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense, or they gave the meaning of the scriptures that they were reading, and they helped them understand. And they explained that this is a holy day, a day that is holy to God in verse 9. Notice what the people's response was. They weren't moaning and groaning. Verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared unto them. When the people of Israel heard what the holy days were all about and how to keep them, they rejoiced. They didn't feel it was a burden. Then Ezra went on, verse 13, And now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now this is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. So they made booths, temporary dwellings. And there was very great gladness as they started to do these things, the latter part of verse 17. And verse 18, Also day by day from the first day until the last day, he, Ezra, read from the book of the law, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So this was how the Israelites were taught to keep the holy days. Those holy days, as we read from the law, picture the plan of God. God does have a plan, and he has a purpose that he's working out on this earth. Notice in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. <clears throat> Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Some people have been told over the years that there is no plan. Jesus is the plan. But God has a plan, and Jesus is part of that plan. Notice in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 8. Now, this is a challenge that Isaiah is issuing to the people of Israel. Remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, stand up and take a position. Recall to mind, think, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end or the outcome, declaring the future from the very beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. God has the capacity to look into the future and predict the future, saying here in uh, verse 10, my counsel shall stand, my plan, my purpose will stand, it will be accomplished. The Hebrew word for counsel is Esa, E-S-A, which means a plan or a purpose. God is working out a plan and a purpose. That plan and purpose is pictured in the biblical holy days. The first three holy days, the Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost, picture historical events that have already taken place. The Passover pictures the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. That's why a lamb without blemish, was sacrificed at the Passover. 
The days of unleavened bread picture the fact that if we want to become Christians like God, we're going to have to put sin out of our lives. Sin is a type of, of leavening that needs to be removed from our lives. Pentecost pictures the outpouring of God's Spirit. We need God's Spirit to understand the Word of God. We need God's Spirit to grow and overcome. Pentecost also pictures the beginning of a New Testament church. And that New Testament church had a mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to feed the flock of God, to prepare a people to reign with Jesus Christ. That's what those first three holy days picture. The last four holy days, which all come within a period of a month at the end of the year, picture the culmination of God's plan. And as we keep these holy days, it reminds us of the plan of God. The Feast of Trumpets pictures the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And definite events are going to take place before he returns to this earth. The Day of Atonement pictures the fact that Jesus Christ is going to put Satan out of commission. He's going to be bound for a thousand years. The negative influences that we all have to deal with, the negative influences that have deceived the world are going to disappear. When Satan is bound, it's going to be a very exciting time. Then the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the government of God, the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ is going to establish on this earth. It's going to be an exciting time. And the Feast of Tabernacles gives us an opportunity to focus on that period of time and to prepare for that period of time. The last great day, the eighth day of the feast, pictures a time when the whole, everyone who has ever lived is going to have a chance to understand the truth of God. People that died down through history that never understood, that never heard of Jesus Christ, are not lost. They're not burning in hell forever. They're going to have a chance to understand the truth that you and I have been given an opportunity to understand today. You know, just sitting down and looking at the meaning of the Holy Days pictures a plan. Let's look for just a moment also at what Jesus Christ is going to do when he returns to this earth to establish the kingdom of God. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> verses 6 and 7. This is what is going to happen during the time pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a very exciting time. It's something to look forward to. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and rule. He's going to rule over the nations of the world. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, a Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The one who understands the way to peace is going to show the world the way to peace. The Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's going to go on and on and on forever. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever. Jesus Christ is going to come back, set up a government on this earth, beginning in Jerusalem and spreading out over the entire world to bring justice and judgment to this earth. The Prince 
the peace. This is what we have been called to become part of. Now, you're familiar with the scriptures in Revelation 5.10 that talk about the saints. You and I are going to have the opportunity to rule with Jesus Christ as kings and as priests, as civil and religious leaders, to reorient the world. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21 talks about the saints are going to become teachers to say, this is the way. This is the way. Walk you in it. This is the way to peace. This is how you can have peace of mind. This is how you can have peace between you and other people. This is how nations can get along peacefully. They're going to have to be taught and shown that way of life. When we understand this whole process, what God is working out, Christ coming back to set up a government, the saints to rule with Jesus Christ, to bring peace to this earth, it gives an awful lot of meaning to what we read in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus was preaching about at the very beginning of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 5, we have the Beatitudes. It talks about blessed is the person that does this and does that. But notice in verse 9, it said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who understand the way to peace. The Greek word for blessed means to be envied. They're going to become spirit beings and reign with Jesus Christ because they've learned the way to peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God and the daughters of God. Men and women today who learn the way to peace are going to become part of God's family to rule with Jesus Christ forever and ever. They're going to be involved in teaching the world the way to peace. I'd like to ask you, as we go through this sermon and as we contemplate what comes uh, next, do you know the way to peace? You know, when I was growing up in high school and college, there was a catchy song that came out. It was entitled, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Let me just rephrase the question and point it at you and me. Do you know the way to peace? Do you know what brings peace? I want to talk about in the sermon today, the time that we have remaining, what is the way to peace? What does the Bible have to say about the way to peace? What does history and what does the Bible reveal about man's quest for peace that stretches back over centuries? Why haven't human beings been able to bring peace to this world? The Bible reveals the answers. This is a vital topic that we need to understand as individuals, that we need to understand collectively as a church, because we have been called to reign with Jesus Christ and show the world the way to peace. We can't do that if we don't understand God's way to peace. Let's look for just a moment at how relevant the subject of peace is. Why is it so important that we talk about it at the feast? Why is it so important that the Bible talks about it? You know, Jesus warned in Matthew 24 what things would be like as we approach the end of this age. Jesus was asked by his disciples in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, 
What is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know that we are getting close to the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ? Notice the things that Jesus talks about. He said, this is going to dominate the news as we approach the end of the age. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. Verse 6, he says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Turn on the television. That's what you hear. That's what you hear all around the world, nation against nation. Uh, He says, uh, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The word here for nation is ethnos. It's really talking about ethnic strife, one group, ethnic group against another ethnic group. Lying, killing, stealing, butchering, doing all the things that they will be doing. And that's what dominates the news today. Nation will rise against nation, ethnos against ethnos, kingdom against kingdom. One government against another government. There'll be famines and pestilences. And these things are often what follows warfare. Crops are destroyed. People starve. Uh, Infrastructure such as uh, water supplies and food supplies are disrupted. People get sick whenever they are malnourished. Earthquakes in various places. And some of the things that are happening today appear to be happening because the Earth's ecosystems have been upset. These are all the beginning of sorrows. In other words, this is just the start of everything. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, basically talking about the people of God. You'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. This is what Jesus said is going to dominate the world news just before his return. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 21, it says, For then, just prior to Christ's return, there'll be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, nor ever shall be. In other words, what we're going to see in the future, the strife, the violence, the warfare, the suffering, will be like nothing that has ever happened before. And some pretty bad things have happened down through history. And then Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, unless God intervenes and sends Jesus Christ back to this earth, no flesh would be saved. We would destroy ourselves. But God says, for the elect's sake, you and I have been called to be part of the elect. A small group of people that have been called out of this world and is being prepared to reign with Jesus Christ and restore peace to this earth. For the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. In other words, if God did not intervene, send Jesus Christ and prepare a group of people to reign with Jesus Christ, there would really be no hope for human beings. This is what the Bible says is coming. If we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, another uh, scriptural insight into what is coming in the future. Some people think there's not much prophecy in the New Testament, but there's quite a bit, entire chapters. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, difficult times, troubled times, stressful times. Men will be lovers of themselves. That would include women too. Human beings are focused on themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, 
unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. People talk about modern barbarians today, have no values, do whatever they want to do. But they'll have a form of godliness, but not really following the instructions of God. This is what is coming for human beings that do not know the way to peace. They want peace. They talk about peace. Again, this is even described in the Scriptures. Notice in Jeremiah, several places, prophecies about the people of Israel, and these also apply to the world in an overall sense. In Jeremiah chapter 6, now this is a prophecy describing what it's going to be like in the nations of Israel today. And as you look around today, you see this happening. Latter part of verse 13, it says, And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They don't tell the truth. They're focused in wrong directions. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly or superficially. They plaster over the problems, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Talking about peace, but not being able to find the way to peace. God says this is what the conditions are going to be in Israel, especially as we approach the end of the age. In Jeremiah chapter 8, the same concept is repeated. Latter part of verse 10 of chapter 8. Everyone deals falsely, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly or superficially. They've not addressed the real causes of the problem, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Verse 15, it says, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. Why can't we find peace? Isaiah addresses the same problem in Isaiah chapter 32. Actually, let's see. In Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 7, it mentions the ambassadors of peace will weep bitterly. In other words, all the efforts to negotiate and all the efforts to bring peace are not going to work. This is what God has to say about man's attempts to bring peace to this earth. Why is it that human beings have not been able to bring peace to this earth? Why is it that families today can't get along? Why is it that people in congregations can't get along? The Bible explains in Isaiah chapter 32... In Isaiah chapter 59, we find the answer to these questions of why human beings have not been able to bring peace to this earth. God reveals it if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. In Isaiah 59 verse 8, it says, The way of peace they have not known. Talking about human beings. Talking about the leaders of Israel. And talking about the leaders of many churches today and the people in those churches. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish a government that is going to bring peace and justice to this earth. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. The paths that they have chosen do not lead to peace. They just don't work. Whoever takes that way, the human way searching for peace, shall not know peace. That's pretty strong. But this comes from the God of the universe, 
is going to send Jesus Christ to bring peace to this earth. He says, human beings don't know the way to peace. The leaders of Israel don't know the way to peace. Many Christians today do not know the way to peace. And he says, whoever takes their way is not going to know peace. You know, brethren, part of our job today as a church is to cry aloud and spare not and show the people of Israel what they don't understand, to show them their sins, to explain to them that there is a better way that's revealed in the Scriptures. Isaiah 55 is an interesting Scripture to contemplate in this context. Isaiah 55, verse 8. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts basically higher than yours. Now here at the feast, we've got to think bigger. We've got to get outside of our little box and think about bigger things. How do we bring peace to this earth? How do we prepare to become kings and priests and teachers that are able to explain the way of peace, the way to peace, to the peoples of this earth and to the peoples of this world? Let's take some time and talk about God's way to peace and why human beings have not been able to bring peace to this earth. Let's go back to um, Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, because this was one of the prophecies that talked about people trying to bring peace but not being able to find peace. In Jeremiah chapter 8, we start reading in verse 8. It says, How can we say we are wise and the law of God is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. Wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. One of the reasons that people talk about peace today and can't find peace is they've rejected God's instructions. They've rejected God's instructions about how to bring peace to this earth. They're simply not interested. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Where some of these scriptures are repeated in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Romans 3 and verse 17 it says, And the way of peace they have not known, quoting Isaiah 59 and verse 8. And he also mentions here then, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible tells us human beings have rejected God's way. They don't fear God. They don't want to be instructed from the Word of God. They want to do it their own way. And as a result, we've not been able to find the way to peace. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, talking about the human approach to peace, the human approach to many, uh, the human approach to many uh, parts of knowledge. In verse 28, it says, "Even though, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge." <laughs> I want to think about God. The Bible's a myth; uh, it's, it's not 
It's not practical. We don't have to follow it today. It's out of date. Paul was dealing with some of the same issues. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, a mind that's incapable of understanding the truth, incapable of finding the real solutions to problems that goes round and round in circles. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. Human beings have rejected God's way to peace. And if you look at what the history of mankind reveals about human attempts to find peace, it's really quite instructive. Down through the ages, human beings have tried to bring peace through military means, through implements of war. They've tried to enforce peace by beating up on somebody else. And you can pound them into submission. But eventually, when the ruler gets weak, those that were pounded into submission revolt and they strike back. And wars break out again. Military deterrence do not bring permanent peace. That's the lesson of history. And yet leaders down through history have not learned that lesson. Mao Tse-sung, the father of the Chinese Communist Movement, made the statement one time that peace comes out of a gun barrel. Well, it doesn't. It brings people into submission for a period of time, but it does not produce lasting peace. During the Cold War, 20, 30 years ago, America and Russia pursued a policy that was referred to as a mutually assured destruction each of them building up nuclear armaments. They were afraid to use them or deterred from using them because they realized that somebody else would strike back and it would be useless. While it kept a sort of peace, it did not bring permanent peace. Shuttle diplomacy, sitting down around tables to try and negotiate peace. Oftentimes the negotiators start arguing, should it be a square table, a round table? Uh, negotiations don't bring permanent peace. Diplomacy doesn't bring permanent peace. Hans Kahn, a liberal Catholic theologian, has made the statement that there will be no peace until there's peace between religions. Interesting thought. Do you see peace breaking out between the followers of Islam, Muslims, who believe that they need to kill people that don't believe like they do in many cases? and Christians who believe in a just war. Now, these things are incompatible. While it will take peace between religions, we actually have to get rid of religions and get back to the truth because religions often divide people. The UN has tried to bring peace by sending in armed peacekeepers who walk around with rifles to keep belligerents apart. But that doesn't bring permanent peace. In the American West, we had a revolver called the Colt 45. It was referred to as the peacemaker. You know, you blow your enemies away, you get rid of troublemakers, you kill them. But the Old West was not a very peaceful place, even with all the peacemaker revolvers around. Today we refer to police officers as peace officers or as, a, as officers of the peace, to keep the peace. They arrest people, throw them in jail. But they keep on arresting people, and the jails get bigger. Peace officers don't bring permanent peace. It's interesting, religious leaders, when you look at the approaches that they're taking, the Pope, 
the current pope and past popes have prayed for peace and encouraged people to pray for peace and to light candles for peace. But we don't have a peaceful world. The current pope has made comments that uh, in order to have peace, we have to have peace between religion and reason. Just as Hans Kung has said, we have to have peace between religions in order to have peace. The current pope has also mentioned that uh, we need to seek the peace of Christ. But just what does that mean, seeking the peace of Christ? It sounds good, but it's not bringing the world any closer to peace. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about a way to peace that we don't read about in history, that people are not really doing today. Let's go to Psalm chapter 119 and notice what the Bible reveals about the way to peace. Now, this is pretty plain. It's not uh, philosophical. It's very practical. And it can be applied. You can apply it in your personal life. You can apply it in your relationships with other people. And nations will be able to apply these same principles dealing with other nations. In Psalm 119, verse 165, put a big circle around this in your Bible. This is the way to peace. It says, Great peace have those who love your law. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. They're not going to fail in what they're going to be doing. You know, people are being told today, including many Christians, that, well, the law is done away with, and we've been liberated from the law. David said, Great peace have those who love your law, that want to live in harmony with that law, that want to learn to apply that law. Great peace have those who love your law. Let's notice another scripture in Proverbs chapter 3. What Solomon was writing about. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It said, My son, now Solomon was writing to young men, to young women, to people that are young enough to still learn. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. You don't do it just because you have to do it. You do it because you want to do it. Because you know it's going to work. But let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace. They will add to you. You keep my laws, you're going to live long. You're going to have a peaceful life. That's what Solomon was writing. David said, great peace of those who love your law. Solomon said, keep my laws, you're going to live long. And have a peaceful life. It's going to be a benefit to you. Let's look at some of the fundamental laws of God. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. We talk about the law of God. The Ten Commandments are fundamental. And just notice how they work. And the results of these laws. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And one of the reasons we have so many religions in the world is we have so many different gods in the world. Hans Kung said, if we're going to have peace, we have to have peace between religions. One of the reasons we have so many religions is we have all kinds of different gods that people have made. You shall have no other gods before me. If there's only one God, we're going to have one religion. And we'll have a foundation for peace. 
Second commandment talks about not make any carved images. And this is what leads to other gods. The third commandment, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Whenever you take God's name in vain, it shows that you don't respect God. You don't fear God. And if you do that, you're not going to fear his commandments. See, if we want to keep the commandments, we've got to fear God. That will lead to peace. Remember the Sabbath day. The holy days are high Sabbaths. When we remember the Sabbath of God, we remember the holy days of God. We remember the plan of God. And it keeps us focused on this Feast of Tabernacles, this coming kingdom of God, a time of peace, and gives us a reason to prepare to rule with Jesus Christ and show the world the way to peace. The last six commandments become very practical. In verse 12, it says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long on the earth. You know, if young people are raised to honor their parents, to listen to their parents' instruction, and if their parents are striving to be godlike in their actions and their dealing with their children and their dealings with others, people are going to be blessed. There's going to be peace at home when young people are taught to honor their parents. Yet in today's world, young people are told, look, your parents are old fogies. Don't listen to them. You know, they're behind the times. You go out and do your own thing. Doesn't bring peace in the family. Doesn't bring peace in communities. When we violate these commandments, there are problems. Verse 13, you shall not kill, you shall not murder. You know, when we murder people, when we kill people, when we assassinate their character, this is disruptive. It hurts people. It damages relationships. It leads to problems. You know, if nations followed this law, did not kill, did not murder, we wouldn't have standing armies today. We wouldn't have armed policemen walking around. It'd be a very different world. You shall not commit adultery. This destroys relationships. It devastates families. It leaves consequences to children for years. It's very disruptive. It disrupts the peace within the family. It disrupts peace of mind in people by breaking these laws. You shall not steal. If somebody steals something from you, you want to get back at them. You want to get revenge. If you don't steal, you don't create problems that way. You shall not bear false witnesses. In other words, you don't tell lies about people. You don't tell half-truths about people because that separates people. Numerous proverbs talk about a person that's a tail-bearer, separates friends, breaks down relationships, destroys the peace between individuals. You shall not covet. In other words, you should not lust and covet after things that are not yours because this leads to problems. Notice the practical application of this. We turn to the book of James in the New Testament. Now, James is coming back to these fundamental laws of God in his instructions to New Testament Christians. Book of James, chapter 4. <clears throat> why, do we have law, why do we have wars today? Why do we have disputes today? The Bible explains. Where do wars and fights come from, James asked. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? In other words, your lusts? What you want? I want somebody's nation. I want somebody's resources. I want somebody's wife or husband. And we ignore the laws of God. We go after what we want. 
and then we get upset whenever problems arise. We've got to understand the cause of these problems. Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You don't get what you're really looking for. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you're not asking properly. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, we lust, we covet, we want what we want, as opposed to wanting what's best for others and not wanting to do it God's way. But these are practical applications of the laws of God. As we teach people how to apply these things personally, and as people grow up into bigger families, nations, as they learn not to lust and covet what belongs to somebody else, not to kill, not to steal, this is the way that the world will be focused towards the way of peace. What about dealing with interpersonal relationships? Why can't we get along with people? How could we get along better with people? Let's notice some practical guidelines in the scriptures. Let's go to Proverbs. Again, a book of practical knowledge. And we just read how Solomon said, if you, if you don't forget my law, if you apply it, things are going to go a lot better in your life. Proverbs 15, verse 1. Very powerful principle, a very simple one. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours out foolishness. When someone comes at you with both barrels blazing, so to speak, accusing, if we follow this principle, a soft answer turns away wrath. It doesn't hurt to listen a little bit, say, well, you're really disturbed. Uh, Uh, Is there anything I can do to help you? Let me think about some of these things you're talking about as opposed to, don't tell me that! And you come back at them real hard. You know, harsh answer only stirs things up. A soft answer, you're pouring oil on troubled waters, really does work. But it takes patience on your part. It takes understanding, realizing the person's upset, and trying to see a bigger picture than just the immediate... uh, Uh, problem. Proverbs 16, verse 28, another practical principle. Start in verse 27. An ungodly man, a wicked man, an evil person, digs up evil. They're always looking for dirt. You want to talk about negative things. This person's problem and that person's problem. An ungodly man or woman digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. They just got to talk about it. A perverse man, a wicked man, sows strife. They sow the seeds that burst into flames. And a whisperer, a person that gossips, separates the best friends. But notice the solution to the problem over here in chapter 17 and verse 9. Here's how a Christian, a peacemaker, should function. He or she who covers a transgression, who forgives, who overlooks, seeks love. This is how you promote peace. You overlook a transgression. Now, sometimes you have to bring things up and talk to people. But by and large, you don't have to you know, turn around and belt somebody or fire away at somebody. 
if you understand where they're coming from, if you see the big picture, if you're focused on being a peacemaker, he or she who covers a transgression, overlooks, forgives, seeks love, but he who repeats the matter, you know what he did to me? You know what she said? He or she who repeats the matter separates the best of friends. See, that's not the way to peace. There is a way to peace that really does work. <clears throat> Proverbs 16 and verse 32. <clears throat> he or she who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he or she who rules their spirit is better than a person that takes a city. It's talking about the benefits of self-control. Being slow to anger, not firing away at someone. Looking at the big picture, striving to be a peacemaker. Proverbs 17, verse 14. <clears throat> Another principle. All kinds of practical principles here in Proverbs. God wants us to become peacemakers. That's why he gives us these principles. Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife <clears throat> is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. You sense things are getting a little bit hot and a little bit on edge. Calm it down. You know, change the subject. Talk about something else. Compliment a person. You know, shift gears in a conversation. Stop the contention before it starts. Call time out. You count to ten, count to a hundred. Go for a walk. Let off steam that way. You know, don't fire away and come back at someone because once those words are out of our mouth, then it's hard to, to, to reach them back in. Hard to get them back in. And then people have to forgive and, and try and forget. But these are practical principles in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22, another principle, and <clears throat> administrators have to understand this. Proverbs 22 and verse 10. It says, cast out the scoffer and contention, arguments, problems will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. You know, if you've got somebody in an organization or in a congregation or uh, in your business is always griping, always complaining, always arguing, uh, you know, trying to undermine the boss, uh, this person will have to go and maybe have to learn some lessons on the outside because it only creates problems internally. You know, for a business or for a congregation to function effectively, everyone's got to work together as a team, showing respect to one another, you know, building trust, complementing each other, noticing the best as opposed to the worst. These are keys to working together as a team and to get a job done. Now, these are Old Testament principles. Let's go to the New Testament, and we're going to find some of the same things. Notice Jesus Christ's instruction for becoming a peacemaker. Now, this is the Jesus Christ who's going to return to this earth as the Prince of Peace. To set up a government that's going to bring peace to this world. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, some very interesting scriptures. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. In other words, don't seek revenge. 
be willing to take a few shots without striking back. If anyone wants to sue you and take you your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And somebody would say today, you're crazy to do stuff like that. But these were Christ's instructions. Don't try and get the most out of everybody. Be willing to give a little bit. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Go above and beyond. Give to him that asks you, <clears throat> and from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. Again, you've got to use wisdom in the application of these scriptures. Verse 43, you've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, the teachings of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those that hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You pray for them. Do good to them. Be above reproach. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are going to be called the sons of God. Here he's showing us how to bring peace so that we might become the sons of God. For if you love those, verse 46, that love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? If you, greet your, if you greet your brethren only, only your friends, what do you do more than anybody else? Therefore you shall be perfect. Strive to become perfect just as your Father is perfect. Now, the word perfect here is the Greek word teleos, which means complete. You know, spiritually mature, blameless. That should be our goal. But Jesus is talking about going the extra mile, not returning strife for strife, not trying to get revenge. He said, this is the way you build peace. What about interpersonal relationships? Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. You know, oftentimes in a church, if two people can't get along, they run to the minister. And they want to get him involved. And yet that's not according to the instructions that we find in the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, somebody hurts your feelings. Somebody insults you. Somebody says something about you. You don't run to the minister first. It says, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. And you go humbly. You go politely. You go gently. You don't go barging in and, I gotta get you. If your brother or your sister sins against you, upsets you in some way, they may not even know it. Go tell him or her. Explain to them what they have said and how it may have hurt you and what your feeling is. And what you may find out is that you didn't hear it correctly. Maybe somebody related it to you uh, in a wrong way. And maybe they didn't say it after all. But you can solve the problem right there between you and the other person. Go and tell them their fault between you and him. And if he hears you, uh, you've gained your brother. Now, if they will not hear you, well, I'm not going to talk to you. If they will not hear you, then take uh, with you one or two people, basically to witness the situation, and hopefully someone who had heard the same thing, that they can be a witness. If he refuses to hear this small group, then tell it to the church. Now, that means basically, as we have said over the years, 
tell it to the leaders of the church. You don't come into church and blast everybody's problems all around everybody. Yeah, that's very hurtful. But you get the ministry involved, the leaders of the church. But if he refuses to hear the church or the decision of the church, then let him be to you like the heathen. In other words, you don't have anything to do with him. What if someone repeatedly hurts you? What should you do? Are you then justified to go after them? Peter asked that question of Christ. Again, Peter was learning how to become a peacemaker. He wasn't perfect then, as you and I are not perfect now. Verse 21, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And you know, how often shall I have to forgive him? Seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven, 490. Now, does that mean 491? Now I can get him. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's an idiom. It's basically you keep on forgiving. And Christ forgave people who were killing him. Stephen did the same thing. He said, don't hold it against them. Forgive them. How do we become peacemakers that are able to forgive like that? Now, these things are not human. How do we develop this kind of forgiveness? In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we find a key for how to develop this kind of forgiveness. Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost <clears throat> that the, is, the people of uh, Jerusalem had killed the Messiah. They were convicted. They wanted to be part of what they saw happening there, the outpouring of God's Spirit. They wanted to become Christians and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Their response to Peter's preaching in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, they were convicted, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? Peter said, repent, change your life. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's God's Spirit that enables us to repent, to see ourselves as we really are. And it's God's Spirit, when nourished properly, will help us develop the fruits of God's Spirit. We can read about those fruits in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we read about the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are lust and greed and envy and strife and arguments and so on which do not bring peace. But in Galatians chapter 5, we read about the fruits of the Spirit, our love. This is an unselfish, outgoing concern that doesn't sit around and judge others. It's joy. It's, it's thankfulness for knowing the truth of God. Thankfulness for understanding the plan of God, for having our minds open to understand the plan of God. Peace. Peace is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. Peace of mind, knowing that God has forgiven you. Peace of mind, knowing that there is a purpose in human life. Peace of mind, understanding that God has a plan He's working out and that you can be part of that plan. Peace of mind, knowing that you know the way to peace. As we learn to apply the principles, the laws of God, we will find peace. 
But peace is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. So is patience, long-suffering. So is kindness. Now, we have to exercise these fruits when we don't really feel like it, but God's Spirit will help us do that. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One of the reasons we have problems in the world today, as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is that uh, people are without self-control. They just fly off. They say whatever they want, do whatever they want. We read about road rage and all kinds of rages today. People just go off. They kill people. They say things. Uh, all kinds of problems result because of a lack of control, which is really a lack of God's spirit. We need to repent, we need to grow, and we need to change. You know, if we look at the overall instructions that were given in the Scriptures, just notice a couple of things here in conclusion. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is talking about how to get along with the ministry, how to get along with leaders in the church. Because today we live in a world that doesn't like government. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want any guidelines at all. We want to do it our own way. Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, We urge you, brethren, to recognize, to acknowledge, to respect those who uh, labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then he says, Be at peace among yourselves. As Christians, we need to work at being at peace among ourselves. In Romans chapter 12, Paul describes what a Christian life is all about. He talks a bit about being transformed and renewing your mind, getting rid of old thoughts and old ways, and doing things God's way. In chapter 12, verse 10, he says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love. Get acquainted with each other. You know, get, begin to appreciate what each other's strong points are. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, rejoicing in hope and patience. Down to verse 16, he says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set yourself, your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Don't seek revenge. Have regard or respect for good things in the sight of all men. Now notice verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you. Well, I could get along with him if he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't do that. I could get along with her if she wouldn't do this or do that. (laughs) Paul says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you. You do what you can to change yourself. Live peaceably with all men. As much as lies within your power, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, don't seek revenge, but rather give place to wrath. Let God take care of the situation. Now, Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and set up a government. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, it talks about his reward is going to be with him. The power that he's going to give to the saints. His reward is going to be with him, and his work is going to be before him. What is that work? Let's notice quickly. In Isaiah chapter 32, the Bible describes what the work of Jesus Christ is going to involve. 
Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Down in verse 16, it says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. And Christ is going to come back, set up a kingdom of justice and peace. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace. The work of righteousness will be peace. As Jesus Christ and the saints rule, teaching people the laws of God, teaching them the way that uh, leads away from war, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 says that they'll learn war no more. No more military academies, no more armies. They'll not learn war anymore. The work of righteousness, teaching people to follow the laws of God, will lead to peace. Let's conclude with one final scripture in Psalm. Psalm chapter 34, verses 13 and 14. I think an ideal scripture to read here at the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures the coming kingdom of peace that Jesus Christ is going to set up on this earth. Psalm 34, verses 13 and 14. It says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. One of the reasons we don't have peace today is people do not fear the Lord. They don't want to follow His instructions. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? How do we find these things? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it earnestly. We sing a song about this song, about seeking peace. Brethren, as we leave, as we basically enjoy the feast, as we leave the feast and go home, let's strive to be peacemakers. Let's study the Word of God. Let's respond to the instructions that Jesus Christ and the God the Father have revealed in the Scriptures about a way to peace that the world doesn't know and doesn't understand. You and I have been called to become a very special people, to turn the world right side up, to teach the world the way to peace. As we strive to become peacemakers in our own lives, in our dealings with other people, on the job, in our congregations, as we strive to become peacemakers and develop skill in applying the laws of God, we are going to have a peace of mind. We're going to be able to be peacemakers among other people. And we're going to be preparing to teach the world the way to peace. Let's seek peace and let's pursue it earnestly.